If you have a Bible, could you turn it to the book of Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 1. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, you can open up to the middle and you'll probably see Psalms and then head right. And it's a big enough book that it's hard to miss the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, and I'd like to begin by reading um, that whole chapter. So Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 31. This is what God's word says. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as, overgrown by, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. 
Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and run, bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. Thus begins the prophecy of Isaiah. In his poem, Melinda May, Shel Silverstein asks, Have you heard of tiny Melinda May, who ate a monstrous whale? She thought she could, she said she would, so she started in right at the tail. And everyone said, you're much too small, but that didn't bother Melinda at all. She took little bites and she chewed very slow, just like a good girl should. And in 89 years, she ate that whale because she said she would. As we begin the book of Isaiah, I feel kind of like Melinda May, uh, looking at not only the size of Isaiah with 66 chapters, but also, also even as you just heard there, the, the depths of this prophecy, and I'm just a bit overwhelmed. But the way to eat a whale is uh, the same way that you eat an elephant, one bite at a time. And so we're going to seek each week to take bites of this book and to chew them slowly, but not so slowly that it will take us 89 years to get through the book of Isaiah. Uh, but then again, we're also not in any rush. And so we're going to take some breaks here and there. Uh, for the first part of this series, we're going to plan to cover chapters 1 through 27. And so to that end, back on the music stand there, there are some reading plans available if you're interested. Um, this takes you over the course of two weeks through chapters 1 through 27 of the book of Isaiah. Um, and if you would be interested in reading through that. The reason that we're doing that over the course of two weeks is because I'm going to take up chapter 1 uh, this afternoon and then be in the Philippines the next two Sundays, so we won't be in the book of Isaiah. Um, but we'll set the stage today for this study and then resume it again on the 24th. And so if you were to read through this in the next two weeks, you'd kind of have a, a big kind of 10,000 foot view of where we're heading. And then we'll get down into the smaller sections. So feel free to take one of these. Uh, a couple of other thoughts about how we are like and not like Melinda May, the whale eater. Uh, in one sense, we're studying this book because it's here before us. Like George Mallory, the mountaineer, who when asked why he wanted to climb Mount Everest, responded, because it's there. Uh, the presence of this massive work in the middle of our scriptures and the fact that it's quoted so many times in the New Testament, uh, second only to the book of Psalms, it, it, it makes us want to dig in and to, to trek through the peaks and the valleys of this book of Isaiah. 
And yet, on the other hand, we're not studying Isaiah just because it's there or just because we said we would. We're, we're taking up this book because we believe it's the inspired word of God and therefore that it's going to help us understand our glorious, unchanging God. It's going to help us understand ourselves. It's going to help us understand how we can live lives for God's glory and for our good in this world. We believe that God is unchanging and that human nature is pretty consistent no matter the context. And so we believe that this ancient work still speaks to us today and that it can speak with great authority and with great power. Isaiah is often called the the Romans of the Old Testament because it brings together so many different strands of theology into a beautiful and intricate picture. And it's worth the effort of digging down and trying to figure out and trying to swallow this book so that we can understand it well and help and be, be shaped more into the person of Jesus Christ. Because Isaiah is going to tell us about Jesus. John attests to this in his gospel. He writes this in John uh, 12, 37 through 41. This is just before the arrest and the trial of Jesus. John writes, though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, that'd be the Pharisees and the crowds, they still did not believe him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, this is Isaiah 6, he has blinded their eyes and harden their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And then having quoted Isaiah twice, John says in John 12, 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus's glory. He saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah saw Jesus and spoke about him. And Isaiah is going to reveal Christ to us in a, in a unique way that no other book can. Isaiah has been called the fifth gospel. Uh, and, and even today in chapter one, we're gonna see the hope of justification by grace through faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But before we dig into chapter one, let's just kind of give a brief picture of the, of the whole book, the, the whole whale as it were, so we know that where we're heading. Um, the first verse of this book actually is going to help us see the layout of the whole book. Isaiah 1.1 reads like this. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And so in one simple sentence, we're actually given the context for Isaiah's vision that's recorded in all of the following chapters. We're told that this prophecy was going to be that was about to be delivered to Judah and specifically to the city of Jerusalem within Judah. Uh, Jerusalem was in fact Isaiah's hometown and he had close association probably with some of the leaders and the, of, of that city. You'll remember in Israel's history that at this point the kingdom has, has split in two. Um, this happened during the reign of Rehoboam. That's the son of Solomon, grandson of, of King David. And the result of that split was two kingdoms Israel in the north and Judah in the south, each with their own string of kings. And this is how it had been for about 200 years before Isaiah began his ministry. So the kingdom has been split for a while before Isaiah starts prophesying. Uh, And that time period before, just before Isaiah came in, not the whole 200 years, but a good chunk before Isaiah started to prophesy was a very prosperous time 
in Judah's history. But Isaiah is about to warn Judah that in the words of a bluegrass song I like, all the good times would soon be past and gone. That things were going downhill. The time period of these kings of Judah that's mentioned in verse 1 spans about 100 years. Um, and it's recorded if you want to look and get some historical context, which we will do throughout our study. But it's in 2 Kings 15-20 through 20 and 2 Chronicles 26-32 talks about these kings. So this makes Isaiah, just to give you a big word, pre-exilic, which means that his vision was announced to Judah before the Babylonians came and exiled Judah out. Um, another thing to note from this verse is that as Isaiah's entire ministry is being summarized. Did you see that? This is, he prophesied, prophesied during the days of all these different kings. So what's that, what that re, is reminding us of is that Isaiah's vision, as it's recorded here for us, is not chronological in the sense that we might often assume. So what I mean is that this book is not a history of Isaiah's prophecies logged that Isaiah chapter 1 is the first prophecy Isaiah ever did, and Isaiah 66 is the last prophecy that he ever did, and they all follow chronologically from there. That's not how it's, it's set up. In fact, we don't see Isaiah's call until Isaiah chapter 6. And so everything uh, prior to that, pre, it, Isaiah, Isaiah 6 predates everything that we're going to read in, in chapters 1 through 5. So that summarizing in the summarizing nature of Isaiah 1.1 is also a piece of evidence that points to the fact that there was probably a, an editor for this book. So someone or some ones from the school of Isaiah, made up of disciples of Isaiah, compiled all these various prophecies and put them in their present form. It's also widely thought that Isaiah may not be the sole author of every prophecy that's here in the book of Isaiah, but that some of his disciples in the school of Isaiah may have contributed some of these prophecies, but they're all in the spirit of Isaiah, and Isaiah is probably the primary author, and that's why his name is there, and we'll refer to him as the author of pretty much everything. So the summary of verse 1 does one more thing for us as well, though. It reveals that this book should be taken as, as a whole that we shouldn't plunder little pieces from it, but we should think about the whole prophecy together. They've been, these chapters have been ordered, they've been compiled with a, a divine purpose, and they make up this coherent, purposeful prophecy delivered to us. As you think about Isaiah speaking these prophecies, he probably spoke them at different times for different purposes to different groups of people. But here, as it's compiled for us, it's put in this order, in this strand, going from beginning to end for a purpose. And there's something that the whole book is trying to, to teach us. It's leading us in a specific direction to certain revelations about God and his ways. And that's why it's helpful for us to start in Isaiah 1 and go all the way through to Isaiah chapter 66 because it's a, it's a unit and it's taking us on a journey. So let's think about the structure. I know we're kind of doing some more like heady stuff here, but just get a big picture for this. The simplest way to think about Isaiah is that it splits into two parts, um, chapters 1 through 39 and then chapters 40 through 66. If you've ever read through the book of Isaiah, you love it when you get to chapter 40 because the whole tone changes and it actually becomes a lot easier to understand and to rejoice with. Those first 39 chapters are, are tough. Um, from a historical standpoint, the first half deals with the Assyrian invasion that was coming to Judah, 
And the second half deals with the Babylonian assault that was going to come later. So historically, the first 39 chapters, Isaiah is talking about the Assyrians coming. The last half, he's talking about the Babylonians coming. And yet, as Barry Webb says in his commentary, though Assyria and Babylon loom large, we are to keep our eye firmly fixed on Judah and Jerusalem. And as we do so, a figure appears before our eyes. And that figure is the Messiah, the promised deliverer of Israel. And he appears in three different ways throughout the book. Broadly speaking, in chapters 1 through 39, he's held forth as the Davidic king. Chapters 1 through 39, this is the book of the king. It's talking about the Messiah coming in the line of David, and he is the Davidic king. In chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah opens our eyes to an unexpected picture of the Messiah, which is that of the servant or the suffering servant. Chapters 40 through 55, the, the, the Messiah is revealed as the suffering servant. And then in the last 10 chapters, chapters 56 to 66, we look to the future and we find the Messiah described as the anointed warrior or the conqueror. And so the Messiah is revealed to us through the book of Isaiah, revealed as king and then as servant and then as conqueror. And there's this movement happening from the beginning to the end where we're moving from threat to promise. We're moving um, from, from judgment at the beginning of the book to salvation at the end of the book. And so Isaiah functions as a prophet that communicates doom and he communicates judgment, but he also is a prophet that communicates salvation and comfort to God's people. Isaiah emphasizes more than any other prophet the holiness of God. And he also speaks of the hope of salvation, that there's a way for sinful men and women to be made right with the holy God. And as he does this, he reveals that this Jerusalem that's described in the first part of the book can become the new Jerusalem that's described in the final chapters of this book. Which takes us to chapter one. And this chapter encapsulates many of these themes. In fact, uh, along with chapters two through five, it could be called the overture of the book. Maybe you've watched an old movie. You ever watch an old movie where they start and at the beginning there's a big musical piece. They play the overture of that movie. And in that song, it, it carries all the themes, the highs and the lows of what that, where that movie is, is going. And, and that's what happens here. Uh, David Jackman writes this, the first section of the prophecy is in many ways a microcosm of the whole. Introducing the theme of the whole book, the opening chapter poses the central dilemma. Here it is, which is, how the faithless, sinful city of Jerusalem, symbolizing the people of God, is to be transformed into the faithful city in which righteousness dwells. How can men and women who are sinners by nature be transformed into the faithful, obedient people of the loving and powerful Lord, the mighty one of Israel, who is the only true and living God? If we have ears to hear this afternoon, I think we will see the dilemma we are in. Because while Isaiah was writing to Judah, he also exposes our evil hearts. He helps us to see our desolation, our hypocrisy, our injustice. And in revealing our sickness, he also sows the seeds for the hope of redemption and restoration and righteousness. A good doctor helps us to see how sick we are so that we'll take the medicine that we need to take, especially if that medicine is stuff that we don't want to swallow because of what it's going to do to us. 
And God in his kindness uses his word to show us the reality of our sinfulness so that we will turn to him and so that he can heal us. And so I want to give you actually, can I give you two big ideas? It's a big chapter. And one feels a little bit more negative to me and one feels positive. So here's one thing that, that I want to invite you to do this afternoon, which is this. Allow the holy God to reveal your heart of rebellion and your only hope of righteousness. Allow the holy God to reveal your heart of rebellion and your only hope of righteousness. We're going to see Israel's rebellion here. And we're also, if we, if we have ears to hear, we'll see our own rebellion. But we'll also see that there are, there's hope. Isaiah is not uh, just going to expose our sin. He's also going to give us hope. So allow the Holy God to reveal your heart of rebellion and your only hope of, self, of righteousness. But I also want to say this, and maybe this is more where my heart is, which is uh, reject the hollowness of religious hypocrisy. Reject the hollowness of religious hypocrisy and instead rest in the love of the Father and walk in his ways of true righteousness. Two big ideas and they're both way too long. I apologize. (laughs) Reject the hollowness of religious hypocrisy and instead rest in the love of the Father and walk in his ways of true righteousness. Well, keeping those in mind, if you look at the text, verses 2 and 3 introduce the indictment on Judah. And all of heaven and earth are called as witnesses to what the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is saying. The rebellion and sin of God's people is of cosmic significance. And the hope of their salvation is the hope of the whole universe. And so heaven and earth are called to listen. Sin against the creator is no small matter because God is not a small God. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the holy one of Israel. And the breaking of his law is cosmic treason. It goes against the very order of the world that he's made. God describes his people's rebellion in terms of their relationship to him as in terms of a relationship of a father and and his children. That's in verse verse 2. He, he raised them, he brought them up, but like prodigal sons and daughters, they turned away, they rejected him. And then there's a second description in verse three, and it's much less flattering. Judah is said to be less aware than an ox or a donkey. An ox or a donkey knows their owner and knows to come home and where to find food. But Israel has forgotten their Lord. They live in spiritual foolishness and stupidity. These relationships of, of father and of Lord and Master, help us to remember who we are as God's people through faith in Christ. That we are dearly loved children, but we are also bought with a price. That God is our Father, but He's also our Lord, and we belong to Him. And when we rebel against Him, we, ne- we neglect both of those core relationships. We reject Him as our Father, and we reject Him as our Lord. We forget who we truly are. And so the rebellion of God's people is, is a breaking of relationship. It's a forsaking of God. And that rebellion is spelled out in three different spheres here in chapter one. It's spelled out in their, in their national or their political life, their religious life, and their social life. And so we'll walk through those. Verses four through nine expose the sin and the consequences of their national estrangement. That's what we'll call this, national estrangement, that they are God's people and they have become estranged from God. 
So verses 4 through 9, national estrangement. It's hard to know if this is a description of the land after Assyria had attacked or if it's a prediction of what Judah would look like once Assyria did attack. Um, it's hard to know. But, but the invasion by Assyria was going to be God's judgment on Judah's rebellion. Verse 7 paints this, this picture of the whole land lying desolate. You can see, as it were, smoke rising from the villages and the cities. And Jerusalem, who is the daughter of a Zion, there in verse 8, sits like a shack in the middle of a barren field. The picture that came to my mind is, is maybe a picture of an old barn when you're driving down the interstate. You ever see those old barns? I kind of like them, but, but you see them and the, and the roof is caving in and the sides are coming in. That's what the holy city, that's what Jerusalem looks like. And everything around it is, is barren and, and, and destroyed. Why did this happen? It's because of the nation's rebellion. Verse 4 speaks of Judah as evil and corrupt offspring once again. And it says that they had forsaken the Lord and despised the Holy One of Israel. They rejected their father. Verses 5 and 6 describe Judah as a rebellious servant who had continued to rebel and refused to learn from his mistakes. He's bruised, he's broken, and he's not even seeking medical attention. And then the final indictment of verse 9 is that Judah has become like the most despised cities of Israel's history. And apart from God's grace leaving a remnant in the land, they would have been utterly and completely destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. There's hardly any description that you could, you could give to Jerusalem that would be worse than saying they are like Sodom and Gomorrah. And with these vivid pictures, Isaiah helps us to see that sin is self-destructive. Sin is self-destructive. When we rebel against God as our father and our master, we, hurt, we are hurting no one more than ourselves. When we forsake God as our loving father and we fail to turn to him as our provider, we bruise and we beat ourselves and then we refuse to allow him, the great physician of our souls, to bind up our wounds. And so we sit desolate like a broken down barn in a barren field. And we would be utterly destroyed by our own sin and our own rebellion, except for the Father's kindness and patience. As we read this, may God gives us, give us eyes to see the foolishness of our sin, to see that, that, that sinning and rebelling against God is to run from a Father who wants to bless us. Verses 10 through 20 get even more at the heart of what's going on in Judah because Isaiah moves from describing national estrangement to describing religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy, verses 10 through 20. Verse 10 names God's people as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he calls them to listen to God. He, he, and God speaks directly to his people. This is God speaking in verses 11 through 20, and his words are totally devastating. He tells Judah that he wants nothing to do with their sacrifices and their offerings. He wants nothing to do with their religious festivals and gatherings. He wants nothing to do with their prayers. These are not offerings and festivals and prayers offered to false gods. These are the offerings and the festivals and the prayers that Israel's called to be a part of in the law. And yet look at the I statements in verses 11 through 15. This is God speaking again. 11, I have had enough of burnt offerings. Again, I do not delight in the blood of bulls. Verse 13, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Verse 14, the end, 
I am weary of bearing them. Verse 15, I will hide my eyes from you. And again, verse 15, I will not listen. Can you imagine someone speaking to you that way? Can you imagine going to work and having your boss say, I'm, I'm just disgusted with the way that you are, with the job that you've done. I'm not going to listen to you. Someone who's in authority over you speaking to you that way. And here God speaks to his people with words that would wither them, just lay them in the dust. Why? What has brought this out? What would make God this angry? It's religious hypocrisy. It's external practice that is disconnected from the heart. I think the end of verse 13 is key. It helps me understand what the issue is. God says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. What he's saying is God can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly existing together in his people. That God doesn't desire us to participate in religious practices while practicing iniquity that goes against the covenant relationship that those practices are supposed to represent and celebrate. External religious practices don't bring us into relationship with God. They celebrate and they reflect the relationship that already exists because of God's kindness. Think about a celebration like Passover. Passover didn't bring the people of Israel into relationship with God, did it? No, it celebrated what God had done, that God was their God and God had delivered them, that he was their Savior. The sacrifices, they spoke of the need for the people's sins to be atoned for, but they were founded on God's covenant love, on God's faithfulness to his people. And though we are not the nation of Israel, we are no different in our practices and on our religious hypocrisy. Again, I was listening to David Jackman preach on this, and he said this in a sermon, we would be very foolish not to suspect that the same seeds may lie buried in our sinful hearts that our natural inclination would be to be religious externalists who come to church and join the groups and may even be found at the prayer times. We are there outwardly and we seem to be keen Christians, but it is possible that buried in our own hearts is the seed of play acting, of hypocrisy, even perhaps of pride at our outward appearance, but not with a real love for God and a real desire to grow in his likeness. If you feel those seeds in your heart like I do in mine, then together we're going to say, what's the remedy? What's the, what's the remedy of hypocrisy and play acting and religious externalism? Isaiah says it's cleansing. It's the cleansing of God that comes from repentance and the kind of repentance that leads to obedience. There's a call in verses 16 and 17 to change, to put off evil deeds and to put on not more religious practices, but righteousness that flows from true love for God and relationship with him. A righteousness that learns to do good, that seeks justice, corrects oppression, cares for widows and orphans, This is true religion, says Isaiah in the Old Testament and James in the New. It's to keep yourself unstained by the world and to care for widows and orphans. This is the kind of love of neighbor that we're called to in the example of the Good Samaritan. But again, that kind of obedience is the result of true repentance. It's the overflow of a soul that's been made clean by God. 
Salvation is a work of God from the beginning to the end. And the obedience that flows from forgiveness is also God's work in us. That's why verse 16 says, wash yourselves and repent. But what does verse 18 tell us? Verse 18 tells us that God is going to wash us. God will cleanse us. If we are willing and obedient, verse 19, we will know the blessings of salvation. But if we reject the offer, if we persist in external religion alone, we will be destroyed. God is a covenant-keeping God, God, and he promises that those who turn and repent will be saved. And those who truly turn and repent will reject religious hypocrisy and pursue true righteousness. Isaiah strikes one more indictment against Judah in verses 21 through 31. And here he focuses on social injustice. Social injustice, verses 21 through 31. He speaks about this change that had happened in Jerusalem. He says they were a faithful city once, and now they're unfaithful. He said once the city of Jerusalem was righteous, but now it's filled with murderers. They had allowed themselves to be corrupted. They were like silver that had been filled with dross. They were like really the the best wine and it had been watered down and diluted. Power had gone to the heads of their rulers and love for money was causing them to neglect widows and orphans. And so God speaks against them. Again, his words are strong. But what's interesting is that God's desire is not to destroy them. What does God want to do? He wants to purify them. He wants to purify them. He longs to take the dross. If you look in verses 24 through 26, he wants to smelt away the dross. He wants to remove all of the impurity in them. He wants to remove corrupt leaders and restore righteous ones. He wants the city of Jerusalem to again be a place of righteousness and of faithfulness. Again, it's the kindness of God that exposes our sin, that shows us how we failed to love our neighbor and how to love and, or, or to love God fully. And it's the kindness of God that brings us redemption when we repent. As you read this chapter, do you see how seriously God takes sin? That our wickedness is as ugly as a child rebelling against a father who dearly loves him. It's as foolish as a donkey who forgets that his master cares for him and that that's where he goes to get food. Can we recognize our religious hypocrisy? Can we recognize that a lot of times when we think about our faith, we just think about external actions while our hearts are so far away from God? that we think we can appease God with play acting. And he wants our hearts. He doesn't want the externals of religion. He wants our hearts. Can we own our lack of righteousness? Can we own our injustice? That we've neglected the neediest around us, that our our righteousness that Christ has given us has not overflowed in in kindness to, to widows and orphans. that we've neglected the neediest around us in favor of our own comfort 
in favor of our own money, in favor of our own power. And then can we marvel at this? Can we marvel at and rest in this cleansing and redemption that Isaiah is speaking about and that's so clearly revealed in Christ and that's so clearly pictured in the Lord's Supper that we're going to take in a little bit? Jesus, the truest son of the Father, fully submitted to the will of God, and he never forgot him. Jesus never forgot who he was. He loved God with all his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength, and he loved his neighbor as himself. He was the great Samaritan that fulfilled everything that the good Samaritan represented. Every neighbor that he had, Jesus loved completely. And he became the fulfillment of Isaiah 127. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her, who, in her who repent by righteousness. God's people are redeemed by the justice of God poured out on Jesus. And those who repent receive the righteousness of Jesus that will overflow in righteousness in our lives. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that Isaiah 118 says. All who willingly come to the Lord, drawn by his spirit, can be made white as snow. The blood that is on our hands because of our sin and because of our injustice can be washed away forever. Even as I say that though, let's remember, let's remember verses like verses 19 and 20. He says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If we repent, we will eat of the good of the land. If we do not, we will be eaten by God's justice. Verse 28 says that if we persist in rebellion, we will be broken and consumed. And verse 31 says that our strength and our work will be like spark and tinder that will burn up and be completely consumed. As I read Isaiah 1 and then think about us taking the Lord's Supper together, I think Isaiah invites us to allow the Holy God to reveal your heart of rebellion and your only hope of righteousness. That part of looking at this meal is to remember what it cost Christ, what the depth of our rebellion was, what it looked like to be rebellious children, what it looked like to be dumb animals that forgot God. And allow God to reveal that in you. Allow God to reveal your hypocrisy. Allow God to reveal your injustice. And then to drive you to Christ, who is the only hope of righteousness that we have. But the reason I wanted to give you two big ideas is because it also reminds us of this beautiful truth that, that God is not content with religious externalism. God is not content with that. Think about this. God is not asking you just to follow rules and make sacrifices and give him offerings. That would be a form of religion that we could find ourselves in. And many people are content within that, but that's not what God wants from us. He wants all that we are. He wants us to know him and to be known by him. He longs to care for us and to bind up our wounds and to heal us and to restore us and to cleanse us and to make us righteous and then even to use us to bring others back to him. God wants to be our father. 
God wants to be our master, a loving master who cares for us. Our natural inclination is towards religious externalism. It's towards going through the motions. And it feels like that's what God wants and that that would be enough. But he wants so much more. Our hearts are built for relationship and God's saying, that's what I want. And I'm, I am so upset. I am so heartbroken and angry and jealous for you that this is what I'm going to go after. Get rid of all that religious externalism. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your offerings. I don't want your prayers. I want you to be in true relationship with me. And that's where obedience and righteousness are going to flow from, is when we understand God's love for us, that he is a father who cares for us, and we live into that relationship. And so even as we take it, this meal, this meal given by the hands of Jesus that would be pierced hours later, let's reject the hollowness of religious hypocrisy. Reject the hollowness of that. We don't want to live in that. We don't want to live in, in religious externalism. We don't want to live in hypocrisy. Reject that and instead rest in the love of the Father. Rest in the love of the Father that's so clearly seen in the bread and the cup and walk in his ways of true righteousness. I want to invite, invite you into a moment of silence. And again, if I can just read my best summaries of this chapter, it may help us as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. I invite you into this moment of silence. And as I do, let me read these once more. Allow the Holy God to reveal your heart of rebellion and your only hope of righteousness. Reject the hollowness of religious hypocrisy and instead rest in the love of the Father and walk in his ways of true righteousness.